Well, hello friends and neighbours. I thought I'd talk to you a little bit about my farm, give you a bit of background. I run my small farm with draft horses, four of them. Bella, Albert, George and Joey. And they're the motive power on our land. We do not own or use any tractors. We don't have any modern machinery. And I came to this way of being from the tattered detritus of a former life. And it had always been a dream with me, for as long as I could remember, to return to a horse-drawn past. It was a life I felt would be more fulfilling than the barren and boring existence that so much of modernity offers. And I was right. To my mind, much of life began to go downhill with the introduction of the tractor. Before that, most of mankind was required to work with nature rather than against it. After the tractor, even an average man began to believe that nature could and should be bent to his will. Even the very thought of bending nature to one's will had previously only been the preserve of the deluded, the rich or the very powerful. Today, with all of our technology, our apps and our reliance upon utilities and cradle-to-the-grave services, most people don't even begin to understand the complexity of the natural world or appreciate the benefits of its struggles. Working with horses means accepting your own limitations and those placed upon you by the natural world. It means doing things on a human scale, sympathetically, coaxingly, in the measured way of the seasons, making small incremental and evolutionary changes rather than insisting on intensive and crashing revolution. It means physical work, intensely hard physical work at times of a type now seldom even practised in your average gym by those legions of people who have a gnawing sense that a life of ease is not exactly all it's cracked up to be. It means a partnership with your horses, with the land and with nature. Let me tell you, friends, it's a style of life that rewards grit and determination and a certain toughness of character. Of course, many would hate the lifestyle. I have seen many former friends roll their eyes as I eulogise about life as a peasant. Yet if ever any of them have visited me, and seen things with their own eyes, they have to admit that there is something that draws them to it.
Life in the horse-drawn era often meant running just to stand still, giving thanks for those rare periods of completely joyful leisure enjoyed without any feelings of guilt. Furthermore, it meant cooperating with your fellows in a manner almost inconceivable today. For men and women relied upon each other to provide the very stuff of life. Without cooperative action, even basic comfort was unattainable. To be an individual, alone with your difference, meant being cast adrift in a cold, bleak sea of poverty and misery. There was a need for a certain strength of character, toughness, companionability and an inner self-reliance. Maybe I'm wrong. Perhaps it was not so much the tractor as the engine, an engine of any sort, that started to bring about the decline in, in the rewards of life. For I am sure the pre-mechanical sailor felt the same with the introduction of the steam packet. No longer dependent upon the wind, the liberty from much of nature imposed its own tyranny upon fewer and harder-worked individuals. There was to be no becalmed forced idleness, no waiting for a change of wind direction, no intimate personal observation of tidal patterns, water eddies, and no communal application of personal skills in getting the best from a vessel underway through the power of wind. For the engine rode roughshod over nature, nuance and nous. It forced a passage where none had previously been possible, and it did it relatively undemandingly. The simple command, full steam ahead, replaced the intricate ballet of multiple human effort setting sails aloft. Take, for example, the simple act the simple act of creating a gate access into a field on any farm. In horse-drawn days, its placement was an art, an act of compromise between nature and need. The fall of the land, the nature of the footing beneath, the natural drainage, the absence of aged trees, the ease and the limit of any digging required. Gates in the days of the working horse were placed with a mind to all of the above. They were placed in a manner which balanced practical human need with the natural given circumstances. It is clear to any with even the slightest knowledge of working horses which gates were placed in the eras when the working horse was supreme. Gates placed in the era of the machine pay almost no heed to nature. Convenience, need and the brutal unyielding necessity of profit are the drivers. They are driven through at any cost. Any cost to nature or to aesthetics. They pay scant attention to such inconveniences as flora 
and the natural fall of the land. Drainage is immaterial, for there is a machine for that. What consequence the footing? Concrete will solve it. That ancient tree, that Devon bank, that knob of rock outcropping, an hour's work with a digger at most. Nothing shall stand in our way. For in our drive to master, in our love for efficiency, we now fail to see what we may have lost or be about to lose. Our old ways of seeing things with a sympathetic and empathetic eye, balancing need with nature, is almost entirely gone. To me, modern farms seem cold and barren places. You see their huge sheds and bare yards visibly encircling us across the hills surrounding our 20-odd acres. On some of the dairy units near us, the cattle are housed in sheds where they are fed silage, imported feed and plastic-wrapped grass, whilst the animals are kept in a vague state of pretty questionable health by a cocktail of modern medications, all designed to maximise their milk production. Breeds are selected, bred and fed merely for their yield, without any consideration as to their locality, their resilience to the prevailing conditions or to their local market. Once their maximum yielding years are behind them, they will be culled to appear in a supermarket lasagna as a beef burger or as other meat-based, overly processed products. Around us, huge green chicken sheds abound in our local area where once every house or home kept a few birds for eggs and occasionally for the pot, economies of scale now mean that thousands upon thousands of chickens are housed together. And even free-range chickens now are hemmed in on all sides in densely packed fields of bare and sanitised earth with tenement-like roosting sheds. Much of modern pig-rearing follows a similar pattern. In contrast, pre-engine era farms were carefully created, evolving over time, buildings placed over the years with an eye for natural advantage. If you look, for instance, at any old disused card shed, where level ground was not available, they were almost always placed at the bottom of an incline. Why place a cart shed there? Why? Because the horses were hitched to remove them from the sheds and could easily pull them up the slope when they were needed for work. But they were always easier to run back into the shed downhill by human power alone. Now I don't want to blame farmers because it's become fashionable to do so. You can blame the supermarkets, the manufacturers and anyone else grouped together as part of the agricultural industry. And you can blame them for the ills of all modern food production. Yet, friends and neighbours, we are all complicit. 
Indeed, were it not for individual purchase decisions, none of these methods of food production would be in any way viable. Now, I do not blame the farmers. They're merely attempting to keep their heads above water and provide for their customers and their own families. It is with all of us as consumers that the real guilt lies. Yet given our society and our culture, the fundamentals of our way of life, what alternative is there? I hardly think we will abandon our longing for the pocket change burger, cheap chicken, posh ready meals, for two with a bottle of wine thrown in for less than an expensive cocktail, Given our consumption-oriented lifestyles and our mania for choice, our love of a bargain, not to mention a belief in the right to overindulge ourselves if we so wish, there is currently pretty much no alternative. It seems inevitable to me that in the future we will have more of the same and an even greater intervention of technology and biomedical science in our food production. We need to face it, folks. You're not going to satisfy the food needs and tastes of the masses on the produce of farms like mine. Nobody will go hungry in order to watch the steady tread of the ploughman behind his team. For all the talk of buy local and artisan produce, you need only take the merest glimpse into the average kitchen larder or fridge to see that buying local is a rare minority and niche activity. We may bang on about sustainability, but how many of our meals contain anything made within 10 miles of home? Recently, I decided against the purchase of any foodstuff produced outside of the UK. Now, it's harder than you think. As an experiment, I decided that nothing shall pass my lips not made within the UK borders. Once I master that, I hope to manage to reduce that to England and then eventually down to the southwest of England. However, without the widespread adoption of such fetishized food purchase practices as this, the dream of food sustainability will remain a fantasy. With the reduction in girth of my food catchment area, I'm hoping to see a reduction in my own waistband measurement. To eat locally seems to mean eating better and probably eating less, something that might encourage the wider adoption of such practices for some, but the lack of choice and the monotony will leave others cold. No more Belgian chocolates, French cheese or Spanish strawberries for me, for a year at least. Now in the hamlet where we live, the Victorian and Edwardian residents people who lived in a horse-drawn era enjoyed, within walking distance, almost everything they required in daily life. Milk, bread, cheese, meat, 
and vegetables were all there on their doorstep, or very close to it. There was a shop, a post office, a forge, a flour mill, a sawmill, and for those things required from further afield, a carrier who spent his days trotting his horse and carriage between the interceding villages and our small market town some five and a half miles away. Residents of the hamlet could either travel with the carrier or commission him to pick up articles on their behalf, paying a small consideration for the privilege. Not exactly your modern internet commerce model or click and collect, but it's not too far away from it. Work was also available locally. In the past, agriculture was labour-intensive, demanding large numbers and hard, if intermittent, effort from both men and women. While it's true to say that agriculture in bygone times had many similarities with the modern gig economy and worrying uncertainty about where an income might be found, there were many skills an individual could turn their hand to. If the harvest failed, you could go hedging, ditching, poaching, cleaning, washing and gleaning. And this might at least keep the wolf from the door and allow the individual to maintain their self-respect in sustaining themselves by the dint of their own efforts. Labour-saving devices of that time were in short supply, but this, I think, brought benefits that outweighed many of the disadvantages. If you did not wish to skivvy yourself, and you were sufficiently wealthy, you employed local staff to do it for you. And this created work and built strong community ties. The majority of employers got along very well with their staff and only limited exploitation took place. So limited, in truth, that in the sad event of someone behaving cruelly or improperly, the whole community would hear of it and shun the soon-to-be notorious perpetrator. And while it might not make for a modern thrilling historical drama, the overwhelming majority of staff were fairly treated and enjoyed their connection to a prosperous family. The really striking differences I see from today were in the limits of the choices available. Limitations on choice were decidedly seasonal and regional and technological. A Devon shovel, strawberries in June, apples in October, telegrams and letters as the only tools of communication until the invention of the telephone. Much of the equipment used on farms was often designed, produced and used locally which, while limiting choice, enhanced the community links, provided jobs, and it moulded both the green and the built environments in a unique and interesting way. Dry stone walls, earth banks, ditches, 
roads and hedges were particular to locations, as were the houses, the wagons and the working dress. The locally occurring natural resources were put to good use with minimal need for transportation. I imagine that today almost nothing in the modern farmhouse or modern farmyard is made locally. We have so much choice, but only of homogeneous articles created globally for everyone, everywhere. And I believe we are poorer for it. The same utensil, tool or machine is just as likely to be found in Nebraska as in Nuneaton. And our government's obsession with free trade seems to be the antithesis of a truly green policy that all political parties love to cloak themselves in. It's certainly no good for farmers. It's increasingly damaging the environment and hugely limiting consumer choice. At the height of the British Empire, Britain abandoned protectionist economic policies in favour of free trade, but only after it had cornered the worldwide market for most industrially produced goods. Even then, such policies had serious consequences and implications for the average British citizen. Today, it seems to have become an accepted mantra of governments everywhere that free trade is beneficial. But to whom, I ask? If we consider who benefits most from global manufacturing and free trade, it's certainly not local businesses or the local consumer. How much better might it be to protect and rebuild sustainable local economies that often sorry that offer a much greater degree of security for the majority than to continue with the social impoverishment and environmental destruction offered by international corporations, competition and export-led growth. Prioritising domestic production would allow locally-based jobs to flourish and ensure long-term employment from those considered to be the left behind. Large corporations might hate it, but ask yourself, who are governments there to truly serve? With our government, partnerships are often talked about in policy decision-making. We hear of corporations talking of those they seek to exploit, legitimately or otherwise, as their partners. Pictures of rugged, red-faced farmers taken with their livestock. Lots of handshakes and backslapping while the corporations surreptitiously help themselves to the contents of the farmers' wallets. Yet once again, what are the alternatives? Housewives, if I can risk being ostracised by calling them as such, are unlikely to traipse around their local area seeking out artisan products from diverse independent stores while they juggle children, household chores, work 
and social media. It might be a mum's net fantasy, but the reality is that life often intrudes upon good intentions. Governments talk of their love of small farmers like me, of growing produce sustainably, of micro-agriculture, and of their support for the benefits of hedgerow management. But their policy decisions, and the agencies charged with implementing them, make it almost impossible for small farmers like me to continue without legal and secretarial support, indeed, accountancy as well. Governments know that their public love the idea of small, sustainable farms. So they adapt their rhetoric, whilst behind the scenes they make a small farmer's life well-nigh impossible. Meagre profits, tiny impacts and the bureaucratic difficulties of dealing with a huge lack of uniformity in the structures of small farms means that the small farmer is something governments would really like to see wither and die. And folks, given my experience to date, they're well on the way to achieving that goal. But then so much of modernity of our modern life is destructive, overhyped, and in the end fails to deliver on the promises it makes. So other than the chainsaw, you can keep most of modern life. All right, folks, that's it for today. I look forward to talking to you next time. You look after yourselves and take care. Bye-bye.